This is a presentation of LifePoint Church. Our mission is to make gospel-centered disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information, please visit sharethelife.org. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Good morning, my name is Zach. Uh, excited to be here with you. I'm part of a preaching team here at LifePoint, and we're in week five of a se series called In His Image. Uh, th that means we only have one more week of this series, and then on June 5th for the summer, we're gonna be walking through the book of Philippians. Uh, we'll cover the whole book in uh, 14 weeks. We're excited to be walking through that. I um, love the book of Philippians. But we'll be finishing up this series in the next couple weeks. We uh, chose this series for a reason. We really did see a, a problem in our culture increasingly. We've, we've seen that we're interacting more and more with a lot of conflicting worldviews out there in the world. Uh, our understanding of reality cha changes and shapes everything that we do in our life. And you've been bumping into quite a few of those. And we wanted to spend six weeks to lay a firm foundation of what the Bible lays out as the story of reality. What's real? How do we see the world? And this week, we'll be addressing, I think, a critical question that will shape your perspective of the world and how you live in it. And I want to ask this question today as we unpack uh, this text from 2 Corinthians. And it's this. Do people really change? Have you ever thought about that? Do people really change? I'm not talking about a haircut. I've seen that. I've seen that kind of change. I mean deeply, profoundly, and permanently, do people really change? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have, if I'm honest. I've asked that question of myself in seasons or moments of my life where I'm frustrated with who I'm becoming. <laughs> and I think, can I really change? Am I really becoming something different? I've asked that question, have you? Do people really change? I've asked that question about people I love intensely and have prayed for for years. Can people really change? Have you ever asked yourself that question? A lot hinges on how you answer that question. Shapes your worldview, doesn't it? 
Either people can change or people don't change, and that really shapes how you view reality and how you live your life, doesn't it? There's only two answers. Uh, some people say no. No. They might not admit it, but they live that way. People really don't change. Have you interacted with this? Maybe you've been this person. And, and people that say no might point to examples of people in their life who have tried to change, and, and they've said this, look, people will always be who they've always been. They'll always be who they've always been. They don't really change. And that person tries to change in their life, and when they slip up and fall back to who they were, they, they might even a little bit smugly behind closed doors with a little smirk on their face, they go, see, see, people don't really change. He'll always be who he's always been. You ever heard that? That's a worldview. That's a perspective of reality that shapes how you live. Do people really change? Some say no. Some say yes. Some say yes. And what are you thinking of? If you say yes right now, what's the grounds of why you say yes? Maybe you're thinking, yes, people change because grandpa changed. He smoked a pack a day back in the day, and he said, I'm gonna quit, and he quit cold turkey. See, Grandpa, he's a new man, totally different. Hasn't smoked a cigarette since. Yes, people can change. And that, that same person that points to Grandpa might actually, in the really honest moments, wrestle with why, well, Grandpa could quit smoking, but I can't seem to break my own bad habits. What's the secret sauce that grandpa has? How did he change? This question matters for your perspective of reality. Much hangs in the balance. <laughs> if people do not change, and that's your answer in worldview, it can lead to fatalism and despair, and if you can't change, just live as, for as much pleasure as you possibly can. <laughs> and maybe you say, yes, people really can change, and that shapes your view of reality, but if that's not true, then maybe you have false hope, and maybe you're spinning your tires for no reason. Why are you trying so hard to change if you can't? This is worldview questions. And here's the problem with those answers. And here's my guess. Just, I'm in your brain right now. <laughs> My guess is how you answer that question, the foundation of it, nine out of 10 times is experience. We go there. Experience is the highest, firmest foundation of what's true and real in the world. That's where we go, whether or not people change. I wanna go to a higher ground an even firmer foundation of reality itself. Not your experience, I wanna talk about the designer of reality. And that's what this series is all about. If worldview is like pieces of a puzzle being put together, the truest, most profound picture of reality is the front of the puzzle. It's the picture on top of the box, and I'm saying the picture's right here. So suspend the ground of your reasoning from experience for a moment, and, and let's see what God says. Can people really change? What does God say? So that's why your finger's on 2 Corinthians 3.18. Keep it there. 
Let's look at the text, and I want to unpack three questions I think this text answers today. First, do people really change? Is it possible? Is it possible? Second, what should we change into? What's the goal? What's the target? And third, how do people change? So I'm talking about possibility, I'm talking about the goal of change, and I'm talking about the process of change today. First, is it possible? Is it possible? There's a problem that gives a lot of credence to the people that say, no, change isn't possible. And, and Paul illustrates several of these problems. This is a wonderful chapter. I'll give us just a little bit of background. And I want to point to two problems, the law and blindness. Uh, chapter three, Paul is writing uh, back and forth letters to this church in Corinth. He's had a tense relationship. And of anybody he writes to in any church that he tries to develop and mature, the Corinthians struggle to change. They really struggle to change. And Paul in chapter three is trying to defend his ministry against an old ministry that failed to change people. It was called the ministry of the law or the ministry of, of Moses. And, and in chapter three, he's comparing both of those, the ministry of Moses and this new kind of way of doing ministry that really brings about change. The first problem in the way that people try to change was the law. And so chapter three unpacks Exodus 32 through 34. You get to see Paul exegete scripture itself. Love, you should study this chapter even more. There's a lot here. Do you remember what happened in Exodus? Remember God's people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years? And if you as a people group have been enslaved generation after generation, it kind of shapes who you are. You're a slave. That's your identity. You've been that for 400 years. And then God does this miracle, there's the, the plagues, and he sends Moses, and he saves these people whom he's chosen out of slavery. They cross the Red Sea, they get planted on the, the bank, they're safe, but there's only one problem. They still act like slaves. He, he's rescued them, but they're not a transformed people yet. And, and so God has a, a ministry. He creates a covenant with his people. He says, I want you to be my people and I will be your God. I'm gonna change who you are. You will become the people of God. And so to help them learn how to not be slaves anymore, he gives them 10 guidelines, <laughs> rules, called the 10 commandments. And these are all about how to relate to God and relate to others to be a totally different kind of person. No longer slave, you're gonna be the people of God. And three times the Israelites say, yes, we will, we promise, we promise, we make a covenant with you, God, we will change. But it didn't work. In fact, before Moses can get back down the hill, they failed to change. <laughs> they, they started making a cow out of gold to worship it. <laughs> they failed miserably, and not just day one. They failed over and over and over. From Exodus through the rest of the Old Testament, it's the story of the people of God failing to be the people of God. It didn't work. So bad was this method of change that Paul, earlier in this chapter, calls it the ministry of death. 
and condemnation. <laughs> the, the law failed to change people. It actually just showed people how much they failed to change. That's what the law did. It's the first problem. It, it gives credence to why people think, look, there's a lot of history here of why people can't change. Do people really change? The first problem's the law. It shows our great need of real transformation. The bar's high. Can we really change? It's, it's the first thing that Paul points out. And he's saying there's something greater coming. Uh, Moses comes down the mountain. He's been with God. He's got the glory of God shining on his face and he's got to wear this, this veil to cover his face because the people are so terrified of this holy, perfect God whom they've failed. They say, Moses, cover your face. We don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. That's the context. And he's going to unpack a different way to bring about change. The first problem is the law. Have you ever tried to change by the law? There's a lot of worldviews. A lot. I, you, you ever heard this? You ever bumped? Maybe you're here today and you've said this before. You know what? Hey, hey, easy worldview people, back off. I'm just trying to be a good person. Okay? I'm doing my best. I'm trying to be a good person. That's law. I'm trying to follow the rules in my own effort. Here's the only problem though. If, one, you're gonna fail. And two, if you're successful, who gets the credit for being a good person? You do. And then that might turn into pride. <laughs> and then you might become a bad person and break the law. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. It really is. Doesn't work. But the problem gets worse. And Paul points out another problem. It's not just that the law failed to bring about lasting, permanent change. It's that people are blind. Blindness is a problem. And this, this harkens back to week three. You're going to hear echoes of Wes's message about two of the kinds of blindness. We're blinded by the lies of Satan and we're blinded by our disordered desires, our own sinful flesh. I want to highlight those two here briefly. Take a look at the text. So just after verse 18 is chapter four. If you go down to verse three, I'll read it here. Paul says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, veiled is like a blinder, can't see. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, so we're talking about unbelievers here, in their case, the lowercase g God of this world has blinded them. The, the lowercase g, the God of this word, world, the God that, that rules and prowls around like a lion, that's Satan, and he has blinded people from what? He has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's, that's our series, Christ, the image of God. So that's another problem. Not only does the law not effective, but there's this lowercase g, Satan, who's prowling around in the world and trying to blind people from the light of the gospel. But it gets worse. Not only is Satan trying to blindfold you, but you're blind, and so am I. <laughs> Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 15, another kind of blindness. Uh, back up to 14, 14. Verse 14. 
speaking again of unbelievers, but their minds were hardened. And then in verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So we've got minds that are that are blind, they can't see and understand, and we have hearts, desire factories right here, the, the center of the human will that's hardened to God. Paul's talking about people that are gathering in the synagogues and they're talking about the law over and over again, and he's saying, look, it's like they're blind. It's not gonna bring change. There's a new ministry, a new way they need sight. If you think change isn't possible, you've got three good reasons. The law problem, the Satan blindiness problem, and our own hardened hearts and minds that refuse to see it. What's that, what's that really like today? What's that practically like? The, the blindness isn't an intellectual blindness. It's not, so you, you come to church and you hear the gospel. I'm not saying the blindness is that they can't, you know, their brain capacity isn't such that they can connect the dots and hear the truth of the gospel. No, they hear and they see it, but they don't see the glory of it. Don't you see? That's the blindness problem here. It's not just that they don't see the gospel. They don't see the glory of the gospel. That is, they don't see it as glorious, as beautiful. They don't see the splendor of it. And so this is how this works. If someone's blind to the gospel, either by Satan or by their own heart and hearts or by trying to follow the rules, they hear the gospel, they hear this good news of Jesus proclaimed, and they yawn. That's spiritual blindness. Not that you don't know the facts, they just don't affect you at all. It's a hard heart. Okay, big deal. I prefer my own life. Thank you very much. Can you see today? I'm praying for you. I've prayed against Satan against your heart and heart, real sight, real sight. This is then the solution to our problem, and it's bad. <laughs> it's bad, but there's a great solution, and it's this, that the Spirit enables us to see our Savior. That's the solution. That's what we need. We need Spirit-enabled sight, beholding, real sight, Look at verse 16 and 17. Here we start to get to the good news and pass the bad news. Verse 16. But, contrast, when one turns to the Lord, that's like repentance and belief language. We turn from our sin and we turn towards God in faith. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil, the blinder, is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's a weird verse right after that. Doesn't that feel, it feels like a hard turn. It's talking about blinders and something and then where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. What do you mean, Paul? 
Okay, first, wh- wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, it, it seems from the context he's saying, wherever the Spirit inhabits someone, wherever the Spirit dwells in someone, when, when they turn to the Lord in faith, that's what's happening. The Spirit is coming, he's dwelling in you, and he's bringing about freedom. But the question is, what freedom? Freedom from what? And I look at the context and I want to say, freedom from what? I see two things that the Spirit brings freedom from. He, he brings freedom to see and therefore freedom to change. Freedom to see and therefore freedom to change. Well, right there in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So turning to the Lord, the Spirit is bringing freedom. What's the freedom? Freedom from blindness. You're able to see, and, and that's, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. If you're here today and you've seen the gospel, you didn't just understand it, but you saw it as glorious, God's done a miracle in you. That's freedom that he brings. Then see what follows from that freedom. What follows from the freedom? Look in verse 18. He helps you see, and then in verse 18, what does that sight bring? And we all with unveiled face, freedom to see, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's sight language, what happens? Are being transformed. Transformed. That's change. That's what that word means. Other translations use that word, change. It's a Greek word, metamorpho, it sounds kind of familiar like another word, metamorphosis. This is profound change, radically different than the old, totally new. Sight brings change. 2 Corinthians 5.17, so just a chapter later. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, changed. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christianity must mean change is possible. Yes, yes, yes. This is what I'm saying. The bad news and the good news of Christianity is summed up this way. Christianity means the challenge of change is far worse than you ever thought. But the savior who brings real change is greater than you ever imagined. That's the Christian worldview. We don't take that lightly that change takes a miracle. It's bad, the bad news is bad, but the good news is greater. That's the Christian worldview. I'm spending time on this because this matters. It, you, you're here and you're a Christian, you're in church, you're like, yeah, of course we can change. That's the center of Christianity. Not in our world today, is it? We need a foundation. This is an important piece to the Christian worldview puzzle. We need to know, not just from experience, but from the Bible, that change is possible. Change is possible. Do you really believe that? I don't mean theoretically. I mean functionally. Do you live in a way that demonstrates, I believe that? If the spirit can bring sight and sight can bring transformation, it can really change us. Do you know what that means? 
If change is really possible, if the answer in Christianity is a resounding yes, that means you are no longer bound to your family of origin. You're not. You don't have to be who your parents were or your grandparents were. You don't have to be the mistakes of your family of origin. Change is possible. That's what Christianity means. Do you believe that? Functionally. If change is possible, it means you are not a hopeless addict. You're not. If change is possible, even your bad habits don't have to define who you're becoming. Because Christianity means change is really possible. Do you believe that functionally? Do you live that way? It's good enough that it means your family members could change. It's good enough that your coworker could change. Your next door neighbor, change is possible. Not because of your experience, not because grandpa quit smoking cigarettes, because God says so. That's why change is possible. Christianity means change is possible. All right, we agree, <laughs> amen, yes, we agree. And a lot of other worldviews agree too, actually, that change is possible. Here's where we start to disagree. Who should we change into? Oh, now we don't agree. Now we don't agree. That's my second question. Is change possible? Resounding yes. Who's the target of our transformation? What does it mean to become a better person? What does it mean I'm trying to be good? Who told you what good is? And the target and the goal is to be more like Jesus. That's the simplest way we can put it. The goal of life change is to be more like Jesus. He's the image of God. Verse 18, let's see it quickly. Verse 18, I'm too excited about change. Gotta move on. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into what? Into who? Yeah. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. That, that same image, it's referent, has to be back to this glory of the Lord. And if we wanna know what that glory of the Lord is, Lord is most concretely, we see it in the context just a few verses later, and I'm going fast, but verse four of chapter four. Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory, there's the same glory that we see, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I think, no, I don't add it up there. You gotta read with me, verse four. And then again in verse six, so I'm in chapter four, verse six, chapter four, verse six. For God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, seen in what? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's the most concrete, he is the perfect image of God. He's a real human. You wanna know who you should become? Look to Jesus, look to Jesus. That's the target. And you see, that's where we really disagree in worldviews. 
I'm not just trying to be a better person. I'm actually trying to be like Jesus. That's who I'm trying to become. This is so fundamentally important to us that when we took a year-long process of fasting and seeking God's face for who we should be as a church and giving us fresh language to identify how do we define success as life point? That's how we put it. We got a poster that I could show you. This is our poster. How do we measure success at life point? We are successful as people become more like Jesus right there in the center of the bullseye. If we've got ministries that don't help people become more like Jesus, cut them. What are we doing here? We are not wasting our time. (laughs) We want to help people become more like Jesus. That's the target of success. Nothing else. Nothing else short of making people more like Jesus than to glorify God. This is important. But there's some other worldviews out there that disagree. I'll just highlight just a few of them. If we claim that the target of transformation must be becoming more like Jesus, uh, how about this one? This is embedded in us in Americans. Don't we love as Americans a great rags to riches story? Mm. Come on, go to the cinemas. We love it. That will sell in the box office. A rags to riches story. It's ingrained into your identity more than you realize. You were born and bred in the land of the red, white, and blue. Rags to riches, right? That's a worldview that agrees with us that change is possible. You can go from rags to riches and totally disagrees on who we should become. Because you can be born into a poor family and you can work really hard and become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you can be a miserable person. Miserable. Selfish, cynical, greedy, Rags to riches, woo! Make a movie out of it, yes! Change is possible. The target matters. And you're gonna bump into worldviews like this all the time. Your, Your neighbor agrees with you that change is possible. They just disagree with who we should become. Jesus. Uh, One other, there's the worldview of self. This is a really popular one right now. This is a worldview. The worldview says, yes, absolutely change is possible. I can become whoever I want to be as long as I define who I want to be. I'll define it. I'll go to college and I'll try and find myself. But the highest good is that I figure out who I am and I become that person. Not Christianity. Christianity says change is possible and the target The goal of transformation is to become more like Jesus. That's point two. Change is possible. And point two, the target of transformation is Jesus Christ himself. How then is change possible? This is our final point. How do we change? I'm trying to summarize uh, verse 18 this way. We progressively become what we persistently behold. I think that's a good summary of verse 18. We progressively become what we persistently behold. Or we become progressively what we behold persistently. Look and see it with me in in verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding 
the glory of God. So that word behold is a word for sight, but it's a, a kind of seeing that's like fix your attention on something, fully focused, almost meditating on, really having all of your, your fixated attention on it. But that verb behold is a participle, a present participle. That's where the ing comes from. So that means this is not a one-time behold. That doesn't mean you show up to church and the preacher's preaching, woo, he's preaching like fire and you saw it once. You saw it once, you saw the glory of the gospel and you were changed. That's an ongoing word. So that means you're gonna have to see over and over and over it, like a diamond. You're gonna look at every facet of the glory of gospel week after week, day after day. So that's why I say we need to behold persistently and what happens from persistent beholding? We are being transformed. That's again a participle, being transformed. So it's progressive, slowly. But to emphasize it, he says this, into the same image from one degree, degree of glory to another. I love that word degree. That word degree gives me hope when I question my own progress in the Christian faith. I hang on that word because it's incremental. It's not just tarnished image to glorious image in a night. It's incremental. One degree of glory to the next. How does this functionally work? How does this functionally work? This incremental growth in becoming more like the image of Jesus Christ happens to you every day. So you, you, you set out, you said, I wanna have some rhythms where I, I see God more often. I wanna see him, I wanna behold the glory of Christ. And so you say, you know, I'm gonna read my Bible, not because it saves me, doesn't, doesn't do anything, there's nothing magical about reading my Bible other than it helps me see who Jesus is. And, and so you read the Gospels and you see Jesus hanging on a cross and he's bleeding out and suffering and he says something like, God, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And, and suddenly, the Spirit of God comes upon you. you. Maybe you've read it before, but this morning, you're given sight. You don't just see it like you read it and it, it seems like cardboard to you, it's boring. You see it and it's, you see the glory of it that morning. You are knocked to the floor for a moment and you go, Jesus is bleeding out on a cross and he's asking for their forgiveness? Who is this God? Don't you, see that's the spirit helping you see something that's glorious. And you know what happens? You walk away from that, you see the glorious forgiveness of Jesus Christ and you've been walking in bitterness towards that family member for years. And that day you become a little bit more like Jesus when you decide, if he could forgive them, how could I not forgive my uncle? I forgive you. And in that moment, don't you see, beholding persistently, it's not every day, but the spirit comes, he gives you amazing, glorious sight to see that it's glorious and it starts shaping who you are becoming from one degree of glory to the other. And I got 10 more examples that I gotta cut right now. This happens over and over and over and over. We are progressively becoming 
that which we are persistently beholding. So I ask you, what are you beholding? What's got your attention? Stuff has got our attention. It's one of the most valuable resources you have. It's more valuable than money. Your attention. What's got your attention? The inverse works as well. Uh, got three examples, but let's just give one. I think it's the worst. Social media. <laughs> if you persistently behold social media, you're just reading and scrolling, and you're reading stuff. Okay, here's an example. You're reading stuff, and you're like, whoa. I would never say that to someone's face. They just said that on Facebook. I can't believe how contentious this is. This is kind of fun to watch. We'll get some popcorn. Woo! And you persistently behold, you persistently behold, you persistently behold, and all of a sudden, it's shaping who you're becoming. And, and you're finding in your relationships, you're a little more fiery. You're a little more contentious, argumentative, defensive. And it's so subtle, it's incremental, from one degree of misery to another. That which we persistently behold is what we're progressively becoming. What are you looking at? What's got your attention? And I, I'm pleading in prayer for us that first the Spirit would come and do a miracle in us to give us sight for the first time, and then I'm praying that day after day, persistently, he would continue to blow our minds with the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus. This is how we become like Jesus. I wanna conclude with some hope. I've uh, a verse we're going to cover this summer that I've really loved that I think fleshes out this tension well is in Philippians 2.12. And it's, it's this verse that says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's a weird verse. Come on. If you're like Justification by grace, we're saved by Jesus alone, it's not my effort. What does Paul mean that we work out our salvation? It's not by works. Hold on, but he said that. He said work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and this is the, the balance and the tension of the Christian faith. Yes, it's the Spirit of God who initially brings sight, okay? He helps you to see, but there will be effort that you will do when you opened your Bible to try and read that gospel to see Jesus. You actually had to do something. You just didn't sit around waiting for God to change you. You did something. But even that doing is God's spirit willing and working in you that you would work out your salvation, become who you are. This is the, the paradox of the Christian life and, it, and it's the center of the worldview of how we change. God does the work, he brings the desire, and then he even works through the effort that he gives us the strength to do. That's in Philippians, and it's said here in a different way at the end of verse 18. How does this transformation happen as I close? 
we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. If God's the one working in you to bring about change, it will surely happen. Surely happen. You will be changed from one degree of glory to the next. As we close our service, we're singing a song that, that speaks about this tension. The, the Christian walk, the whole life of becoming more and more the image of Jesus. Yes, I worked, but yet not I, but through Christ in me. So that's my prayer for us as we close. Jesus, I want to see real life change. I believe it's possible, but I, I want to believe it functionally that you really are at work in us to shape us to become more like Jesus. And I, I wanna pray over hopeless people here today, people who have prayed for years for people they love or people who have struggled day after day to become a different kind of person and they're feeling beat up and tired. Spirit, come and bring hope, bring them vision to see the glory of Christ, his power, and that you'd renew our strength today to pursue you and to see real transformation in our lives. And God, I pray as we bump into others in the marketplace and in the neighborhoods and we see people who are trying to just be a good person, Lord, that we would have the, the courage and strength to point to the one who we're becoming and the one who enables us to become that, Jesus Christ. So it's in his name that we pray now. Amen. This has been a presentation of LifePoint Church. It is our greatest desire that every person would trust Jesus Christ as the leader of their lives and the forgiver of their sins. If you would like to make this decision today or find out more, please visit sharethelife.org.